When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Book Three, Chapter Five of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Three, A Long Lane. Chapter Five. The Golden Dustman Falls into Bad Company. Were Bella Wilfer's bright and ready little wits at fault? Or was the golden dustman passing through the furnace of proof and coming out dross? Ill news travels fast. We shall know full soon. On that very night of her return from the happy return, something chanced which Bella closely followed with her eyes and ears. There was an apartment at the side of the Boffin mansion, known as Mr. Boffin's room. Far less grand than the rest of the house, it was far more comfortable being pervaded by a certain air of homely snugness, which upholstering despotism had banished to that spot, when it inexorably set its face against Mr. Boffin's appeals for mercy in behalf of any other chamber. Thus, although a room of modest situation, for its windows gave on Silas Wegg's old corner, and of no pretensions to velvet, satin, or gilding, it had got itself established in a domestic position analogous to that of an easy dressing-gown or pair of slippers and whenever the family wanted to enjoy a particularly pleasant fireside evening, they enjoyed it, as an institution that must be, in Mr. Boffin's room. Mr. and Mrs. Boffin were reported sitting in this room, when Bella got back. Entering it, she found the secretary there, too, in official attendance, it would appear, for he was standing with some papers in his hand by a table, with shaded candles on it, at which Mr. Boffin was seated, thrown back in his easy chair. "'You are busy, sir.' said Bella, hesitating at the door. "'Not at all, my dear, not at all. You're one of ourselves. We never make company of you. Come in, come in. Here's the old lady in her usual place.' Mrs. Boffin, adding her nod and smile of welcome to Mr. Boffin's words, Bella took her book to a chair in the fireside corner by Mrs. Boffin's work-table. Mr. Boffin's station was on the opposite side. "'Now, Rokesmith,' said the golden dustman, so sharply rapping the table to bespeak his attention, as Bella turned the leaves of her book, that she started. "'Where were we?' "'You were saying, sir,' returned the secretary, with an air of some reluctance, and glanced towards those others who were present, "'that you considered the time had come for fixing my salary.' "'Don't be above calling it wages, man,' said Mr. Boffin, testily. "'What the deuce! I never talked of any salary when I was in service.' "'My wages.' said the secretary, correcting himself. "'Rokesmith, you're not proud, I hope,' observed Mr. Boffin, eyeing him askance. "'I hope not, sir, because I never was, 
when I was poor,' said Mr. Boffin. "'Poverty and pride don't go at all well together. Mind that. How can they go well together? Why, it stands to reason. A man, being poor, has nothing to be proud of. It's nonsense.' With a slight inclination of his head, and a look of some surprise, the secretary seemed to assent by forming the syllables of the word nonsense on his lips. "'Now, concerning these same wages,' said Mr. Boffin, "'sit down.' The secretary sat down. "'Why didn't you sit down before?' asked Mr. Boffin, distrustfully. "'I hope that wasn't pride. But about these wages. Now, I've gone into the matter, and I say two hundred a year. What do you think of it? Do you think it's enough?' "'Thank you. It is a fair proposal.' "'I don't say, you know,' Mr. Boffin stipulated, "'but what it may be more than enough. I'll tell you why, Rokesmith. A man of property, like me, is bound to consider the market price. At first I didn't enter into that, as much as I might have done. But I've got acquainted with other men of property since, and I've got acquainted with the duties of property. I mustn't go putting the market price up, because money may happen not to be an object with me. A sheep is worth so much in the market.' I ought to give it, and no more. A secretary is worth so much in the market, and I ought to give it, and no more. However, I don't mind stretching a point with you. Mr. Boffin, you are very good, replied the secretary, with an effort. Then we put the figure, said Mr. Boffin, at two hundred a year, and the figure's disposed of. Now, there must be no misunderstanding regarding what I buy for two hundred a year. If I pay for a sheep, I buy it out and out. Similarly, if I pay for a secretary, I buy him, out and out. In other words, you purchase my whole time. Certainly I do. Look here, said Mr. Boffin. It ain't that I want to occupy your whole time. You can take up a book for a minute or two, when you've nothing better to do, though I think you'll almost always find something useful to do. But I want to keep you in attendance. It's convenient to have you at all times, ready on the premises. Therefore, betwixt your breakfast and your supper, on the premises I expect to find you." The secretary bowed. "'In bygone days, when I was in service myself,' said Mr. Boffin, "'I couldn't go cutting about at my will and pleasure, and you won't expect to go cutting about at your will and pleasure. You've rather got into habit of that lately. Perhaps it was for want of a right specification betwixt us. Now, let there be a right specification betwixt us, and let it be this. If you want to leave, ask for it.' Again the secretary bowed. His manner was uneasy and astonished, and showed a sense of humiliation. "'I'll have a bell,' said Mr. Boffin, "'hung from this room to yours. When I want you, I'll touch it. I don't call to mind that I have anything more to say at the present moment.' The secretary rose, gathered up his papers, and withdrew. Bella's eyes followed him to the door, lighted on Mr. Boffin, complacently thrown back in his easy chair, and drooped over her book. "'I've let that chap—' "'That young man of mine,' said Mr. Boffin, taking a trot up and down the room, "'get above his work. It won't do. I must have him down a peg. A man of property owes a duty to other men of property, and must look sharp after his inferiors.' Bella felt that Mrs. Boffin was not comfortable, and that the eyes of that good creature sought to discover from her face what attention she had given to this discourse, and what impression it had made upon her for which reason Bella's eyes drooped more engrossedly over her book, and she turned the page with an air of profound absorption in it. "'Noddy,' said Mrs. Boffin, after thoughtfully pausing in her work. "'My dear,' returned the golden dustman, stopping short in his trot, 
"'Excuse my putting it to you, Noddy, but now, really, haven't you been a little strict with Mr. Rokesmith to-night? Haven't you been a little, just a little, little, not quite like your old self?' "'Why, old woman, I hope so,' returned Mr. Boffin cheerfully, if not boastfully. "'Hope so, dearie.' "'Our old selves wouldn't do here, old lady. Haven't you found that out yet?' Our old selves would be fit for nothing here, but to be robbed and imposed upon. Our old selves weren't people of fortune. Our new selves are. It's a great difference. Ah, said Mrs. Boffin, pausing in her work again, softly to draw a long breath and to look at the fire. A great difference. And we must be up to the difference, pursued her husband. We must be equal to the change. That's what we must be. We've got to hold our own now against everybody, for everybody's hand is stretched out to be dipped into our pockets, and we have got to recollect that money makes money as well as makes everything else. Mentioning recollecting, said Mrs. Boffin, with her work abandoned, her eyes upon the fire, and her chin upon her hand, do you recollect, Noddy, how you said to Mr. Rokesmith, when he first came to see us at the bower, and you engaged him, how you said to him that if it had pleased heaven to send John Armand to his fortune safe, we could have been content with the one mound which was our legacy, and should never have wanted the rest? Aye, I remember, old lady. But we hadn't tried what it was to have the rest then. Our new shoes had come home, but we hadn't put them on. We're wearing them now, we're wearing them, and must step out accordingly. Mrs. Boffin took up her work again and plied her needle in silence. "'As to Rokesmith, that young man of mine,' said Mr. Boffin, dropping his voice and glancing towards the door, with an apprehension of being overheard by some eavesdropper there, "'it's the same with him, as with the footman. I have found out that you must either scrunch him, or let him scrunch you. If you ain't imperious with him, they won't believe in your being any better than themselves, if as good, after the stories, lies mostly, that they have heard of your beginnings.' is nothing betwixt stiffening yourself up and throwing yourself away. Take my word for that, old lady." Bella ventured for a moment to look stealthily towards him under her eyelashes, and she saw a dark cloud of suspicion, covetousness, and conceit overshadowing the once open face. "'Howsoever,' said he, "'this isn't entertaining to Miss Bella, is it, Bella?' A deceiving Bella she was to look at him with that pensively abstracted air, as if her mind were full of her book, and she had not heard a single word. "'Ha! Better employed than to attend to it,' said Mr. Boffin. "'That's right, that's right. Especially as you have no call to be told out of value yourself, my dear.' Colouring a little under this compliment, Bella returned, "'I hope, sir, you don't think me vain?' "'Not a bit, my dear.' said Mr. Boffin, but I think it's very creditable in you, at your age, to be so well up with the pace of the world, and to know what to go in for. You're right. Go in for money, my love. Money's the article. You'll make money of your good looks, and of the money Mrs. Boffin and me will have the pleasure of settling upon you, and you live and die rich. That's the state to live and die in, said Mr. Boffin, in an unctuous manner. Rich! There was an expression of distress in Mrs. Boffin's face as, after watching her husband's, she turned to their adopted girl, and said, "'Don't mind him, Bella, my dear.' "'Eh?' cried Mr. Boffin. "'What? Not mind him?' 
"'I don't mean that,' said Mrs. Boffin, with a worried look, "'but I mean, don't believe him to be anything but good and generous, Bella, because he is the best of men. No, I must say that much, Noddy. You are always the best of men.' She made the declaration as if he were objecting to it, which assuredly he was not in any way. "'And as to you, my dear Bella,' said Mrs. Boffin, still with that distressed expression, "'he is so much attached to you, whatever he says, that your own father has not a truer interest in you, and can hardly like you better than he does.' "'Says too,' cried Mr. Boffin, "'whatever he says. Why, I say so, openly. Give me a kiss, my dear child.' in saying good-night, and let me confirm what my old lady tells you. I am very fond of you, my dear, and I am entirely of your mind, and you and I will take care that you shall be rich. These good looks of yours, which you have some right to be vain of, my dear, though you are not, you know, are worth money, and you shall make money of them. The money you will have will be worth money, and you shall make money of that too. Here's a golden ball at your feet. Good-night, my dear. Somehow, Bella was not so well pleased with this assurance and this prospect as she might have been. Somehow, when she put her arms round Mrs. Boffin's neck and said good-night, she derived a sense of unworthiness from the still anxious face of that good woman, and her obvious wish to excuse her husband. "'Why, what need to excuse him?' thought Bella, sitting down in her own room. "'What he said was very sensible, I am sure, and very true, I am sure.' It is only what I often say to myself. Don't I like it, then? No, I don't like it. And though he is my liberal benefactor, I disparage him for it. Then pray, said Bella, sternly putting the question to herself in the looking-glass as usual, what do you mean by this, you inconsistent little beast? The looking-glass, preserving a discreet ministerial silence when thus called upon for explanation, Bella went to bed with a weariness upon her spirit which is more than the weariness of want of sleep. And again in the morning she looked for the cloud, and for the deepening of the cloud, upon the golden dustman's face. She had begun by this time to be his frequent companion in his morning strolls about the streets, and it was at this time that he made her a party to his engaging in a curious pursuit. Having been hard at work in one dull enclosure all his life, he had a child's delight in looking at shops. It had been one of the first novelties and pleasures of his freedom, and was equally the delight of his wife. For many years their only walks in London had been taken on Sundays when the shops were shut, and when every day in the week became their holiday, they derived an enjoyment from the variety and fancy and beauty of the display in the windows, which seemed incapable of exhaustion. As if the principal streets were a great theatre, and the play were childishly new to them, Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, from the beginning of Bella's intimacy in their house, had been constantly in the front row, charmed with all they saw, and applauding vigorously. But now Mr. Boffin's interest began to centre in bookshops, and more than that, for that of itself would not have been much, in one exceptional kind of book. "'Look in here, my dear.' Mr. Boffin would say, checking Bella's arm at a bookseller's window. "'You can read a sight, and your eyes are as sharp as they're bright. Now, look well about you, my dear, and tell me if you see any book about a miser.' If Bella saw such a book, Mr. Boffin would instantly dart in and buy it, and still, as if they had not found it, they would seek out another bookshop, and Mr. Boffin would say, "'Now, look well all round, my dear, for a life of a miser, or any book of that sort.' 
any lives of odd characters who may have been misers. Bella, thus directed, would examine the window with the greatest attention, while Mr. Boffin would examine her face. The moment she pointed out any book as being entitled Lives of Eccentric Personages, Anecdotes of Strange Characters, Records of Remarkable Individuals, or anything to that purpose, Mr. Boffin's countenance would light up, and he would instantly dart in and buy it. Size, price, quality were of no account. Any book that seemed to promise a chance of miserly biography, Mr. Boffin purchased without a moment's delay, and carried home. Happening to be informed by a bookseller that a portion of the annual register was devoted to characters, Mr. Boffin at once bought a whole set of that ingenious compilation, and began to carry it home piecemeal, confiding a volume to Bella, and bearing three himself. The completion of this labour occupied them about a fortnight. When the task was done, Mr. Boffin, with his appetite for misers wetted instead of satiated, began to look out again. It very soon became unnecessary to tell Bella what to look for, and an understanding was established between her and Mr. Boffin that she was always to look for lives of misers. Morning after morning they roamed about the town together, pursuing this singular research. Miserly literature not being abundant, the proportion of failures to successes may have been as a hundred to one. Still Mr. Boffin, never wearied, remained as avaricious for misers as he had been at the first onset. It was curious that Bella never saw the books about the house, nor did she ever hear from Mr. Boffin one word of reference to their contents. He seemed to save up his misers, as they had saved up their money. As they had been greedy for it, and secret about it, and had hidden it, so he was greedy for them, and secret about them, and hid them. But beyond all doubt it was to be noticed, and was by Bella very clearly noticed, that as he pursued the acquisition of those dismal records with the ardour of Don Quixote for his books of chivalry, he began to spend his money with a more sparing hand. And often when he came out of a shop with some new account of one of those wretched lunatics, she would almost shrink from the sly, dry chuckle with which he would take her arm again and trot away. It did not appear that Mrs. Boffin knew of this taste. He made no allusion to it, except in the morning walks when he and Bella were always alone, and Bella, partly under the impression that he took her into his confidence by implication, and partly in remembrance of Mrs. Boffin's anxious face that night, held the same reserve. While these occurrences were in progress, Mrs. Lammle made the discovery that Bella had a fascinating influence over her. The Lammles, originally presented by the dear Veneerings, visited the Boffins on all grand occasions, and Mrs. Lammle had not previously found this out, but now the knowledge came upon her all at once. It was a most extraordinary thing, she said to Mrs. Boffin. She was foolishly susceptible of the power of beauty. But it wasn't altogether that. She never had been able to resist a natural grace of manner. But it wasn't altogether that. It was more than that. And there was no name for the indescribable extent and degree to which she was captivated by this charming girl. This charming girl, having the words repeated to her by Mrs. Boffin, who was proud of her being admired, and would have done anything to give her pleasure, naturally recognised in Mrs. Lammle a woman of penetration and taste. Responding to the sentiments by being very gracious to Mrs. Lammle, she gave that lady the means of so improving her opportunity, as that the captivation became reciprocal, though always wearing an appearance of greater sobriety on Bella's part than on the enthusiastic Sophronia's. Howbeit, they were so much together that, for a time, the Boffin chariot held Mrs. Lammle oftener than Mrs. Boffin, a preference of which the latter worthy soul was not in the least jealous, placidly remarking, 
Mrs. Lammle is a younger companion for her than I am, and, law, she's more fashionable. But between Bella Wilfer and Georgiana Podsnap there was this one difference, among many others, that Bella was in no danger of being captivated by Alfred. She distrusted and disliked him. Indeed, her perception was so quick, and her observation so sharp, that after all she mistrusted his wife too, though with her giddy vanity and wilfulness she squeezed the mistrust away into a corner of her mind, and blocked it up there. Mrs. Lammle took the friendliest interest in Bella's making a good match. Mrs. Lammle said, in a sportive way, she really must show her beautiful Bella what kind of wealthy creatures she and Alfred had on hand, who would as one man fall at her feet enslaved. Fitting occasion made, Mrs. Lammle accordingly produced the most passable of those feverish, boastful, and indefinably loose gentlemen, who were always lounging in and out of the city on questions of the Bourse, and Greek, and Spanish, and India, and Mexican, and par, and premium, and discount, and three-quarters and seven-eighths, who in their agreeable manner did homage to Bella, as if she were a compound of fine girl, thoroughbred horse, well-built drag, and remarkable pipe, but without the least effect though even Mr. Fledgeby's attractions were cast into the scale. "'I fear, Bella, dear,' said Mrs. Lammle, one day in the chariot, "'that you will be very hard to please.' "'I don't expect to be pleased, dear,' said Bella, with a languid turn of her eyes. "'Truly, my love,' returned Sophronia, shaking her head and smiling her best smile, "'it would not be very easy to find a man worthy of your attractions.' "'The question is not a man, my dear,' said Bella coolly, "'but an establishment.' "'My love,' returned Mrs. Lammle, "'your prudence amazes me. "'Where did you study life so well? "'You're right. "'In such a case as yours the object is a fitting establishment. "'You could not descend to an inadequate one from Mr. Boffin's house, "'and even if your beauty alone could not command it, "'it is to be assumed that Mr. and Mrs. Boffin will—' "'Oh!' "'They have already,' Bella interposed. "'No. Have they really?' A little vexed by a suspicion that she had spoken precipitately, and withal a little defiant of her own vexation, Bella determined not to retreat. "'That is to say,' she explained, "'they have told me they mean to portion me as their adopted child, if you mean that. But don't mention it.' "'Mention it?' replied Mrs. Lammle, as if she were full of awakened feeling at the suggestion of such an impossibility. "'Mention it!' "'I don't mind telling you, Mrs. Lammle,' Bella began again, "'my love, say Sophronia, or I must not say Bella.' With a little short petulant, "'Oh!' Bella complied, "'Oh, Sophronia, then!' "'I don't mind telling you, Sophronia, that I am convinced I have no heart, as people call it, and that I think that sort of thing is nonsense.' "'Brave girl,' murmured Mrs. Lammle. "'And so,' pursued Bella, "'as to seeking to please myself, I don't, except in the one respect I have mentioned. I am indifferent otherwise.' "'But you can't help pleasing, Bella.' said Mrs. Lammle, rallying her with an arch look and her best smile. "'You can't help making a proud and admiring husband. You may not care to please yourself, and you may not care to please him, but you are not a free agent as to pleasing. 
You are forced to do that, in spite of yourself, my dear. So it may be a question whether you may not as well please yourself, too, if you can. Now, the very grossness of this flattery put Bella upon proving that she actually did please in spite of herself. She had a misgiving that she was doing wrong, though she had an indistinct foreshadowing that some harm might come of it thereafter. She little thought what consequences it would really bring about, but she went on with her confidence. "'Don't talk of pleasing in spite of oneself, dear,' said Bella. "'I have had enough of that.' "'Aye,' cried Mrs. Lammle, "'am I already corroborated, Bella?' "'Never mind, Sophronia, we will not speak of it any more. Don't ask me about it.' This plainly meaning, do ask me about it, Mrs. Lammle did as she was requested. "'Tell me, Bella, come, my dear, what provoking burr has been inconveniently attracted to the charming skirts, and with difficulty shaken off?' "'Provoking, indeed,' said Bella, "'and no burr to boast of. But don't ask me.' "'Shall I guess?' "'You would never guess. "'What would you say to our secretary?' "'My dear, the hermit secretary, "'who creeps up and down the back stairs and is never seen.' "'I don't know about his creeping up and down the back stairs,' "'said Bella, rather contemptuously. "'Further than knowing that he does no such thing, "'and as to his never being seen, "'I should be content never to have seen him, "'though he is quite as visible as you are.' But I please him for my sins, and he had the presumption to tell me so. The man never made a declaration to you, my dear Bella. Are you sure of that, Sophronia? said Bella. I am not. In fact, I am sure of the contrary. The man must be mad, said Mrs. Lammle, with a kind of resignation. He appeared to be in his senses, returned Bella, tossing her head, and he had plenty to say for himself. I told him my opinion of his declaration, and his conduct, and dismissed him. Of course, this has all been very inconvenient to me, and very disagreeable. It has remained a secret, however. That word reminds me to observe, Sophronia, that I have glided on into telling you the secret, and that I rely upon you never to mention it. Mention it, repeated Mrs. Lammle with her former feeling. Mention it. This time Sophronia was so much in earnest, that she found it necessary to bend forward in the carriage, and give Bella a kiss. A Judas order of kiss, for she thought, while she yet pressed Bella's hand after giving it, "'Upon your own showing, you vain heartless girl, puffed up by the doting folly of a dustman, I need have no relenting towards you. If my husband who sends me here should form any schemes for making you a victim, I should certainly not cross him again.' In those very same moments Bella was thinking— why am I always at war with myself? Why have I told, as if upon compulsion, what I knew all along I ought to have withheld? Why am I making a friend of this woman beside me, in spite of the whispers against her that I hear in my heart? As usual, there was no answer in the looking-glass when she got home, and referred these questions to it. Perhaps if she had consulted some better oracle, the result might have been more satisfactory. But she did not and all things consequent, marched the march before them. On one point, connected with the watch she kept on Mr. Boffin, she felt very inquisitive, and that was the question whether the secretary watched him too, and followed the sure and steady change in him, as she did. 
Her very limited intercourse with Mr. Rokesmith rendered this hard to find out. Their communication now, at no time, extended beyond the preservation of commonplace appearances before Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, and if Bella and the secretary were ever left alone together by any chance, he immediately withdrew. She consulted his face when she could do so covertly, as she worked or read, and could make nothing of it. He looked subdued, but he had acquired a strong command of feature, and, whenever Mr. Boffin spoke to him in Bella's presence, or whatever revelation of himself Mr. Boffin made, the secretary's face changed no more than a wall. A slightly knitted brow, that expressed nothing but an almost mechanical attention, and a compression of the mouth that might have been a guard against a scornful smile, these she saw from morning to night, from day to day, from week to week, monotonous, unvarying, set, as in a piece of sculpture. The worst of the matter was that it thus fell out insensibly, and most provokingly, as Bella complained to herself in her impetuous little manner, that her observation of Mr. Boffin involved a continual observation of Mr. Rokesmith. Won't that extract a look from him? Can it be possible that makes no impression on him? Such questions Bella would propose to herself, often as many times in a day as there were hours in it. Impossible to know. Always the same fixed face. "'Can he be so base as to sell his very nature for two hundred a year?' Bella would think. And then, "'But why not? It's a mere question of price with others besides him. I suppose I would sell mine, if I could get enough for it.' And so she would come round again to the war with herself. A kind of illegibility, though a different kind, stole over Mr. Boffin's face. Its old simplicity of expression got masked by a certain craftiness, that assimilated even his good humour to itself. His very smile was cunning, as if he had been studying smiles among the portraits of his misers. Saving an occasional burst of impatience, or coarse assertion of his mastery, his good humour remained to him, but it had now a sordid alloy of distrust, and though his eyes should twinkle and all his face should laugh, he would sit holding himself in his own arms, as if he had an inclination to hoard himself up, and must always grudgingly stand on the defensive. What with taking heed of these two faces, and what with feeling conscious that the stealthy occupation must set some mark on her own, Bella soon began to think there was not a candid or a natural face among them all but Mrs. Boffin's. None the less, because it was far less radiant than of yore, faithfully reflecting in its anxiety and regret every line of change in the golden dustman's. Rokesmith, said Mr. Boffin, one evening, when they were all in his room again, and he and the secretary had been going over some accounts. "'I'm spending too much money. Or leastways, you are spending too much for me.' "'You are rich, sir.' "'I am not,' said Mr. Boffin. The sharpness of the retort was next to telling the secretary that he lied, but it brought no change of expression into the set face. "'I tell you, I am not rich,' repeated Mr. Boffin, "'and I won't have it.' "'You are not rich, sir?' repeated the secretary, in measured words. "'Well,' returned Mr. Boffin, "'if I am, that's my business. I am not going to spend at this rate, to please you or anybody. You wouldn't like it, if it was your money.' "'Even in that impossible case, sir, I—' "'Hold your tongue,' said Mr. Boffin. "'You oughtn't to like it in any case. There. I didn't mean to be rude, but you've put me out so, and after all, I'm master.' "'I didn't intend to tell you to hold your tongue. I beg your pardon. Don't hold your tongue. Only don't contradict. 
"'Did you ever come across the life of Mr. Elwes?' "'Referring to his favourite subject at last. "'The miser?' "'Ah, people called him a miser. "'People are always calling other people something. "'Did you ever read about him?' "'I think so. "'He never owned to being rich, "'and yet he might have bought me twice over. "'Did you ever hear of Daniel Dancer?' "'Another miser. "'Yes.' "'He was a good'un,' said Mr. Boffin. "'and he had a sister worthy of him. "'They never called themselves rich, neither. "'If they had called themselves rich, most likely they wouldn't have been so.' "'They lived and died very miserably, did they not, sir?' "'No, I don't know that they did,' said Mr. Boffin curtly. "'Then they are not the misers, I mean. "'Those abject wretches—' "'Don't call names, Roycesmith,' said Mr. Boffin. "'That exemplary brother and sister—' lived and died in the foulest and filthiest degradation. "'They pleased themselves,' said Mr. Boffin, "'and I suppose they could have done no more if they had spent their money. But, however, I ain't going to fling mine away. Keep the expenses down. The fact is, you ain't enough here, Rokesmith. It wants constant attention in the littlest things. Some of us will be dying in a workhouse next.' "'As the persons you have cited,' quietly remarked the secretary, "'Thought they would, if I remember, sir.' "'And very creditable in them, too,' said Mr. Boffin. "'Very independent in them. Never mind them just now. Have you given notice to quit your lodgings?' "'Under your direction, I have, sir.' "'Then I'll tell you what,' said Mr. Boffin. "'Pay the quarter's rent. Pay the quarter's rent. It'll be the cheapest thing in the end. And come here at once, so that you may be always on the spot, day and night, and keep the expenses down. You'll charge the quarter's rent to me.' and we must try and save it somewhere. You've got some lovely furniture, haven't you? The furniture in my rooms is my own. Then we shan't have to buy any for you, in case you was to think it, said Mr. Boffin, with a look of peculiar shrewdness, so honourably independent of you, as to make it a relief to your mind to make that furniture over to me, in the light of a set-off against the quarter's rent. Why, ease your mind, Ease your mind. I don't ask it, but I won't stand in your way, if you should consider it due to yourself. As to your room, choose any empty room at the top of the house. Any empty room will do for me, said the secretary. You can take your pick, said Mr. Boffin, and it'll be as good as eight or ten shillings a week, add it to your income. I won't deduct for it. I look to you to make it up handsomely, by keeping the expenses down. Now, if you'll show a light, I'll come to your office-room and dispose of a letter or two." On that clear, generous face of Mrs. Boffin's, Bella had seen such traces of a pang at the heart, while this dialogue was being held, that she had not the courage to turn her eyes to it when they were left alone. Feigning to be intent on her embroidery, she sat plying her needle, until her busy hand was stopped by Mrs. Boffin's hand being lightly laid upon it. Yielding to the touch, she felt her hand carried to the good soul's lips and felt a tear fall on it. "'Oh, my loved husband,' said Mrs. Boffin, "'this is hard to see and hear. But, my dear Bella, believe me that, in spite of all the change in him, he is the best of men.' He came back at the moment when Bella had taken the hand comfortingly between her own. "'Eh?' said he, mistrustfully looking in at the door. "'What's she telling you?' "'She's only praising you, sir,' said Bella. "'Praising me? You are sure? Not blaming me for standing on my own defence against a crew of plunderers who would suck me dry by driblets? Not blaming me for getting a little hoard together?' 
he came up to them, and his wife folded her arms upon his shoulder, and shook her head as she laid it on her hands. "'There, there, there,' urged Mr. Boffin, not unkindly. "'Don't take on, old lady.' "'But I can't bear to see you so, my dear.' "'Nonsense. Recollect, we are not our old selves. Recollect, we must scrunch, or be scrunched. Recollect, we must hold our own. Recollect, money makes money. Don't you be uneasy, Bella, my child. Don't you be doubtful. The more I save, the more you shall have.' Bella thought it was well for his wife that she was musing with her affectionate face on his shoulder, for there was a cunning light in his eyes as he said all this, which seemed to cast a disagreeable illumination on the change in him, and make it morally uglier. End of Book Three, Chapter Five Book Three, Chapter Six of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Three, A Long Lane. Chapter Six, The Golden Dustman Falls into Worse Company. It had come to pass that Mr. Silas Wegg now rarely attended the minion of fortune and the worm of the hour, at his, the worm's and minion's, own house, but lay under general instructions to await him within a certain margin of hours at the bower. Mr. Wegg took this arrangement in great dudgeon, because the appointed hours were evening hours, and those he considered precious to the progress of the friendly move. But it was quite in character, he bitterly remarked to Mr. Venus, at the upstart who had trampled on these eminent creatures, Miss Elizabeth, Master George, Aunt Jane, and Uncle Parker, should oppress his literary man. The Roman Empire having worked out its destruction, Mr. Buffin next appeared in a cab with Rowland's Ancient History, which valuable work, being found to possess lethargic properties, broke down at about the period when the whole of the army of Alexander the Macedonian, at that time about forty thousand strong, burst into tears simultaneously on his being taken with a shivering fit after bathing. The wars of the Jews, likewise languishing under Mr. Wegg's generalship, Mr. Boffin arrived in another cab with Plutarch, whose lives he found in the sequel extremely entertaining, though he hoped Plutarch might not expect him to believe them all. What to believe, in the course of his reading, was Mr. Boffin's chief literary difficulty indeed. For some time he was divided in his mind between half, all, or none. At length, when he decided, as a moderate man, to compound with half, the question still remained, which half? And that stumbling-block he never got over. One evening, when Silas Wegg had grown accustomed to the arrival of his patron in a cab, accompanied by some profane historian charged with unutterable names of incomprehensible peoples, of impossible descent, waging wars any number of years, and syllables long, and carrying illimitable hosts and riches about, with the greatest ease, beyond the confines of geography, one evening the usual time passed by, and no patron appeared. After half an hour's grace, Mr. Wegg proceeded to the outer gate, and there executed a whistle, conveying to Mr. Venus, if perchance within hearing, the tidings of his being at home and disengaged. Forth from the shelter of a neighbouring wall, Mr. Venus then emerged. "'Braver in arms,' said Mr. Wegg, in excellent spirits, "'welcome.' 
In return, Mr. Venus gave him a rather dry good evening. "'Walk in, brother,' said Silas, clapping him on the shoulder, "'and take your seat in my chimney corner. For what says the ballad? No malice to dread, sir, and no falsehood to fear, but choose to delight me, Mr. Venus, and I forgot what to cheer. Lee toddle de omdi, and something to guide. My ain fireside, sir, my ain fireside.' With this quotation, depending for its neatness rather on the spirit than the words, Mr. Wegg conducted his guest to his hearth. "'And you come, brother,' said Mr. Wegg, in a hospitable glow, "'you come like I don't know what, exactly like it. I shouldn't know you from it, shedding a halo all around you.' "'What kind of a halo?' asked Mr. Venus. "'Ope, sir,' replied Silas. "'That's your halo.' Mr. Venus appeared doubtful on the point, and looked rather discontentedly at the fire. "'We'll devote the evening, brother,' exclaimed Wegg, "'to prosecute our friendly move, and afterwards crushing a flowing wine-cup, which I allude to brewing rum and water. We'll pledge one another, for what says the poet, "'And you needn't, Mr. Venus, be your black bottle, for surely I'll be mine. I will take a glass with a slice of lemon in it, to which you're partial.' for old Lang Syne. This flow of quotation and hospitality in Wegg indicated his observation of some little querulousness on the part of Venus. "'Why, as to the friendly move,' observed the last same gentleman, rubbing his knees peevishly, "'one of my objections to it is that it don't move.' "'Rome, brother,' returned Wegg, "'a city which, it may not be generally known, originated in twins and a wolf and ended in imperial marble wasn't built in a day did i say it was asked venus no you did not brother well inquired but i do say proceeded venus that i am taken from among my trophies of anatomy am called upon to exchange my human warious for mere coal ashes warious and nothing comes of it i think i must give up "'No, sir,' remonstrated Wegg enthusiastically. "'No, sir. Charge, Chester, charge. On, Mr. Venus, on. Never say die, sir. A man of your mark.' "'It's not so much saying it that I object to,' returned Mr. Venus, "'as doing it. And having got to do it, whether or no, I can't afford to waste my time on groping for nothing in cinders. But—' "'Think how little time you have given to the move, sir, after all,' urged Wegg. "'Add the evenings, so occupied together, and what do they come to? "'And you, sir, harmonise her with myself in opinions, views, and feelings. "'You, with the patience to fit together on wires the whole framework of society, "'I allude to the human skeleton, you to give in so soon.' "'I don't like it,' returned Mr. Venus moodily as he put his head between his knees and stuck up his dusty hair, and there's no encouragement to go on. "'Not them mounds without,' said Mr. Wegg, extending his right hand with an air of solemn reasoning. "'Encouragement? Not them mounds now looking down upon us?' "'They're too big,' grumbled Venus. "'What's a scratch here, and a scrape there, a poke in this place, and a dig in the other to them?' "'Besides, what have we found?' "'What have we found?' 
cried Wegg, delighted to be able to acquiesce. "'Ah, there I grant you, comrade. Nothing. On the contrary, comrade, what may we find? There you grant me anything.' "'I don't like it,' pettishly returned Venus as before. "'I came into it without enough consideration. Besides, again, isn't your own Mr. Boffin well acquainted with the mounds? And wasn't he well acquainted with the deceased in his ways? And has he ever showed any expectation of finding anything?' At that moment wheels were heard. "'Now, I should be loath,' said Mr. Wegg, with an air of patient injury, "'to think so ill of him as to suppose him capable of coming at this time of night. And yet it sounds like him.' A ring at the yard-bell. "'It is him,' said Mr. Wegg, "'and he is capable of it. I am sorry, because I could have wished to keep up a little lingering fragment of respect for him.' Here Mr. Boffin was heard lustily calling at the yard-gate, "'Halloa, Wegg, halloa!' "'Keep your seat, Mr. Venus,' said Wegg. "'He may not stop,' and then called out, "'Halloa, sir, halloa. I'm with you directly, sir. Half a minute, Mr. Boffin. Come in, sir, as fast as my leg will bring me, and so, with a show of much cheerful alacrity, stumped out to the gate with a light, and there, through the window of a cab, descried Mr. Boffin inside, blocked up with books. "'Here, lend a hand, Wegg,' said Mr. Boffin excitedly. "'I can't get out till the way's cleared for me. This is the annual register, Wegg, in a cab full of volumes. Do you know him?' "'Now the animal register, sir,' returned the impostor, who had caught the name imperfectly. "'For a trifling wager, I think I could find any animal in him, blindfold, Mr. Boffin.' "'And here's Kirby's wonderful museum,' said Mr. Boffin, "'and Caulfield's characters, and Wilson's. Such characters, Wegg, such characters. I must have one or two of the best of them to-night. It's amazing what places they used to put the guineas in, wrapped up in rags. Catch hold of that pile of volumes, Wegg, or it'll bulge out and burst into the mud.' Is there anyone about to help? There's a friend of mine, sir, that had the intention of spending the evening with me when I gave you up, much against my will, for the night. Call him out, cried Mr. Boffin in a bustle. Get him to bear a hand. Don't drop that one under your arm. It's Dancer. Him and his sister made pies of a dead sheep they found when they were out walking. Where's your friend? Oh, here's your friend. Would you be so good as to help Wegg and myself with these books? Don't take Jemmy Taylor of Southwark, nor yet Jemmy Wood of Gloucester. These are the two Jemmies. I'll carry them myself. Not ceasing to talk and bustle in a state of great excitement, Mr. Boffin directed the removal and arrangement of the books, appearing to be in some sort beside himself, until they were all deposited on the floor, and the cab was dismissed. There, said Mr. Boffin, gloating over them, there they are, like the four-and-twenty fiddlers, all of a row. Get on your spectacles, Wegg. I know where to find the best of them, and we'll have a taste at once of what we've got before us. What's your friend's name? Mr. Wegg presented his friend as Mr. Venus. Eh? cried Mr. Boffin, catching at the name. Of Clarkenwell? Of Clarkenwell, sir, said Mr. Venus. Why, I've heard of you, cried Mr. Boffin. I heard of you in the old man's time. You knew him. Did you ever buy anything of him? With piercing eagerness. No, sir returned Venus. But he showed you things, didn't he? Mr. Venus, with a glance at his friend, replied in the affirmative. "'What did he show you?' asked Mr. Boffin, putting his hands behind him, and eagerly advancing his head. 
Did he show you boxes, little cabinets, pocket-books, parcels, anything locked or sealed, anything tied up? Mr. Venus shook his head. Are you a judge of China? Mr. Venus again shook his head. Because, if he'd ever showed you a teapot, I should be glad to know of it, said Mr. Boffin, and then, with his right hand at his lips, repeated thoughtfully, A teapot, a teapot, and glanced over the books on the floor, as if he knew there was something interesting connected with a teapot somewhere among them. Mr. Wegg and Mr. Venus looked at one another wonderingly, and Mr. Wegg, in fitting on his spectacles, opened his eyes wide over their rims, and tapped the side of his nose, as an admonition to Venus to keep himself generally wide awake. "'A teapot,' repeated Mr. Boffin, continuing to muse and survey the books. "'A teapot, a teapot. Are you ready, Wegg?' "'I am at your service, sir.' replied that gentleman, taking his usual seat on the usual settle, and poking his wooden leg under the table before it. "'Mr. Venus, would you make yourself useful, and take a seat beside me, sir, for the conveniency of snuffing the candles?' Venus complying with the invitation, while it was yet being given, Silas pegged at him with his wooden leg, to call his particular attention to Mr. Boffin standing musing before the fire, in the space between the two settles. <coughs> coughed Mr. Wegg, to attract his employer's attention. "'Would you wish to commence with an animal, sir, from the register?' "'No,' said Mr. Boffin. "'No, Wegg.' With that, producing a little book from his breast-pocket, he handed it with great care to the literary gentleman, and inquired, "'What do you call that, Wegg?' "'This, sir,' replied Silas, adjusting his spectacles, and referring to the title-page, "'is uh, Merryweather's Lives and Anecdotes of Misers.' "'Mr. Venus, would you make yourself useful, and draw the candles a little nearer, sir?' This to have a special opportunity of bestowing a stare upon his comrade. "'Which of them have you got in that lot?' asked Mr. Boffin. "'Can you find out pretty easy?' "'Well, sir,' replied Silas, turning to the table of contents, and slowly fluttering the leaves of the book, "'I should say they must be pretty well all here, sir. Here's a large assortment, sir.' My eye catches John Overs, sir, John Little, sir, Dick Jarrell, John Elwes, the Reverend Mr. Jones of Blueberry, Vulture Hopkins, Daniel Dancer. Give us Dancer, Wegg, said Mr. Boffin. With another stare at his comrade, Silas sought and found the place. Page 109, Mr. Boffin, Chapter 8, Contents of Chapter, His Birth and Estate. His garments and outward appearance, Miss Dancer and her feminine graces, the miser's mention, the finding of a treasure, the story of the mutton pies, a miser's idea of death, Bob, the miser's cur, Griffiths and his master, out to turn a penny, a substitute for a fire, the advantages of keeping a snuff-box, the miser dies without a shirt, the treasures of a dunghill. Eh? What's that? demanded Mr. Boffin. "'The treasures, sir,' repeated Silas, reading very distinctly, "'of a dung-hill. "'Mr. Venus, sir, would you oblige with the snuffers?' "'This to secure attention to his adding with his lips only, mounds.' "'Mr. Boffin drew an armchair into the space where he stood, and said, "'seating himself, and slyly rubbing his hands, "'Give us dancer.' "'Mr. Wegg pursued the biography of that eminent man, "'through its various phases of avarice and dirt,' through Miss Dancer's death on a sick regimen of cold dumpling, 
and through Mr. Dancer's keeping his rags together with a hay-band, and warming his dinner by sitting upon it, down to the consolatory incident of his dying naked in a sack, after which he read on as follows, "'The house, or rather the heap of ruins, in which Mr. Dancer lived, and which at his death devolved to the right of Captain Holmes, was a most miserable, decayed building, for it had not been repaired for more than half a century.' Here Mr. Wegg eyes his comrade, and the room in which they sat, which had not been repaired for a long time. "'But though poor in external structures, the ruinous fabric was very rich in the interior. It took many weeks to explore its whole contents, and Captain Holmes found it a very agreeable task to dive into the miser's secret hoards.' Here Mr. Wegg repeated, "'Secret hoards,' and pegged his comrade again. One of Mr. Dancer's richest escritoires was found to be a dung-heap in the cow-house. A sum but little short of two thousand five hundred pounds was contained in this rich piece of manure, and in an old jacket, carefully tied and strongly nailed down to the manger, in banknotes and gold were found five hundred pounds more. Here Mr. Wegg's wooden leg started forward under the table, and slowly elevated itself as he read on. Several bowls were discovered filled with guineas and half-guineas, and at different times, on searching the corners of the house, they found various parcels of banknotes. Some were crammed into the crevices of the wall. Here Mr. Venus looked at the wall. Bundles were hid under the cushions and covers of the chairs. Here Mr. Venus looked under himself on the settle. Some were reposing snugly at the back of the drawers, and notes amounting to six hundred pounds were found neatly doubled up in the inside of an old teapot. In the stable the captain found jugs full of old dollars and shillings. The chimney was not left unsearched, and paid very well for the trouble, for in nineteen different holes, all filled with suit, were found various sums of money, amounting together to more than two hundred pounds. On the way to this crisis, Mr. Wegg's wooden leg had gradually elevated itself more and more, and he had nudged Mr. Venus with his opposite elbow deeper and deeper, and at length the preservation of his balance became incompatible with the two actions, and he now dropped over sideways upon that gentleman, squeezing him against the settle's edge. Nor did either of the two, for some seconds, make any effort to recover himself, both remaining in a kind of pecuniary swoon. But the sight of Mr. Boffin, sitting in the armchair, hugging himself, with his eyes upon the fire, acted as a restorative. Counterfeiting a sneeze to cover their movements, Mr. Wegg, with a spasmodic, "'Tissue!' pulled himself and Mr. Venus up in a masterly manner. "'Let's have some more,' said Mr. Boffin, hungrily. "'John Elwes is the next, sir. Is it your pleasure to take John Elwes?' "'Ah!' said Mr. Boffin. "'Let's hear what John did.' He did not appear to have hidden anything, so went off rather flatly. But an exemplary lady named Wilcox, who had stowed away gold and silver in a pickle-pot, in a clock-case, a canister full of treasure in a hole under her stairs, and a quantity of money in an old rat-trap, revived the interest. To her succeeded another lady, claiming to be a pauper, whose wealth was found wrapped up in little scraps of paper and old rag. To her another lady, apple-woman by trade, who had saved a fortune of ten thousand pounds, and hidden it, here and there, in cracks and corners, behind bricks and under the flooring. 
To her, a French gentleman, who had crammed up his chimney rather to the detriment of its drawing powers, a leather valise containing twenty thousand francs, gold coins, and a large quantity of precious stones, as discovered by a chimney-sweep after his death. By these steps Mr. Wegg arrived at a concluding instance of the human magpie. Many years ago there lived at Cambridge a miserly old couple of the name of Jardine. They had two sons, the father was a perfect miser, and at his death one thousand guineas were discovered secreted in his bed. The two sons grew up as parsimonious as their sire. When about twenty years of age, they commenced business at Cambridge as drapers, and they continued there until their death. The establishment of the Messrs. Jardine was the most dirty of all the shops in Cambridge. Customers seldom went in to purchase, except perhaps out of curiosity. The brothers were most disreputable-looking beings, for although surrounded with gay apparel as their staple in trade, they wore the most filthy rags themselves. It is said that they had no bed, and, to save the expense of one, always slept on a bundle of packing clothes under the counter. In their housekeeping they were penurious in the extreme. A joint of meat did not grace their board for twenty years, yet when the first of the brothers died, the other, much to his surprise, found large sums of money which had been secreted even from him. "'There!' cried Mr. Boffin. "'Even from him, you see. There was only two of them, and yet one of them hid from the other.' Mr. Venus, who since his introduction to the French gentleman had been stooping to peer up the chimney, had his attention recalled by the last sentence, and took the liberty of repeating it. "'Do you like it?' asked Mr. Boffin, turning suddenly. "'I beg your pardon, sir. Do you like what Wegg's been a-reading?' Mr. Venus answered that he found it extremely interesting. "'Then come again,' said Mr. Boffin, "'and hear some more. Come when you like. Come the day after to-morrow, half an hour sooner. There's plenty more. There's no end to it.' Mr. Venus expressed his acknowledgments, and accepted the invitation. "'It's wonderful what's been hid at one time and another,' said Mr. Boffin, ruminating. "'Truly wonderful.' "'Meaning, sir,' observed Wegg, with a propitiatory face to draw him out, and with another peg at his friend and brother, "'in the way of money.' "'Money?' said Mr. Boffin. "'Ah, and papers.' Mr. Wegg, in a languid transport, again dropped over on Mr. Venus, and again recovering himself, masters emotions with a sneeze. Did you, <clears throat> did you say papers too, sir? Been hidden, sir? Hidden and forgot, said Mr. Boffin. Why, the bookseller that sold me the wonderful museum. Where's the wonderful museum? He was on his knees on the floor in a moment, groping eagerly among the books. Can I assist you, sir? asked Wegg. No, I've got it. Here it is, Mr. Boffin, dusting it with the sleeve of his coat. Volume four. I know it was the fourth volume. That the bookseller read it to me out of. Look for it, Wegg. Silas took the book and turned the leaves. Remarkable petrifaction, sir. No, that's not it, said Mr. Boffin. It can't have been a petrifaction. Memoirs of General John Reed, commonly called the Walking Rushlight, sir, with portrait. No, nor yet him, said Mr. Boffin. Remarkable case of a person who swallowed a crown piece, sir. "'Tied it?' asked Mr. Boffin. "'Why, no, sir,' replied Wegg, consulting the text. "'It appears to have been done by accident.' "'Oh, this next must be it. "'Singular discovery of a will lost twenty-one years.' "'That's it,' 
cried Mr. Boffin. "'Read that.' "'A most extraordinary case,' read Silas Wegg aloud, "'was tried at the last Maryborough Assizes in Ireland. "'It was briefly this. "'Robert Baldwin, in March 1782, "'made his will in which he devised the lands now in question "'to the children of his youngest son.' soon after which his faculties failed him, and he became altogether childish and died, above eighty years old. The defendant, the eldest son, immediately afterwards gave out that his father had destroyed the will, and no will being found, he entered into possession of the lands in question, and so matters remained for twenty-one years, the whole family during all that time believing that the father had died without a will. But after twenty-one years, the defendant's wife died, and he, very soon afterwards, at the age of seventy-eight, married a very young woman, which caused some anxiety to his two sons, whose poignant expressions of this feeling so exasperated their father, that he in his resentment executed a will to disinherit his eldest son, and in his fit of anger showed it to his second son, who instantly determined to get at it and destroy it, in order to preserve the property to his brother. With this view, he broke open his father's desk, where he found, not his father's will which he sought after, but the will of his grandfather, which was then altogether forgotten in the family. "'There,' said Mr. Boffin, "'see what men put away, and forget, or meet to destroy, and don't.' He then added in a slow tone, "'Astonishing!' and as he rolled his eyes all round the room, Wegg and Venus likewise rolled their eyes all round the room, and then Wegg singly fixed his eyes on Mr. Boffin, looking at the fire again, as if he had a mind to spring upon him and demand his thoughts or his life. "'However, time's up for to-night,' said Mr. Boffin, waving his hand after a silence. "'More the day after to-morrow. Range the books upon the shelves, Wegg. I dare say Mr. Venus will be so kind as to help you.' While speaking, he thrust his hand into the breast of his outer coat, and struggled with some object there that was too large to be got out easily. What was the stupefaction of the friendly movers, when this object at last emerging, proved to be a much dilapidated dark lantern? Without at all noticing the effect produced by this little instrument, Mr. Boffin stood it on his knee, and producing a box of matches, deliberately lighted the candle in the lantern, blew out the kindled match, and cast the end into the fire. "'I'm going, Wegg,' he then announced, "'to take a turn about the place, and round the yard. "'I don't want you. "'Me and this same lantern have taken hundreds, "'thousands of such turns in our time together.' "'But I couldn't think, sir, not on any account I couldn't,' Wegg was politely beginning, when Mr. Boffin, who had risen, and was going towards the door, stopped. "'I have told you I don't want you, Wegg.' Wegg looked intelligently thoughtful as if that had not occurred to his mind until he now brought it to bear on the circumstance. He had nothing for it but to let Mr. Boffin go out, and shut the door behind him. But, the instant he was on the other side of it, Wegg clutched Venus with both hands, and said in a choking whisper, as if he were being strangled, "'Mr. Venus, he must be followed, he must be watched, he mustn't be lost sight of for a moment.' "'Why mustn't he?' asked Venus, also strangling. "'Comrade, you might have noticed. I was a little elevated in spirits when you come in tonight. I've found something. What have you found?' 
asked Venus, clutching him with both hands, so that they stood interlocked like a couple of preposterous gladiators. "'There's no time to tell you now. I think he must have gone to look for it. We must have an eye upon him instantly.' Releasing each other, they crept to the door, opened it softly, and peeped out. It was a cloudy night, and the black shadow of the mounds made the dark yard darker. "'If not a double swindler,' whispered Wegg, "'why a dark lantern? We could have seen what he was about if he had carried a light one. Softly, this way.' Cautiously along the path that was bordered by fragments of crockery set in ashes, the two stole after him. They could hear him, at his peculiar trot, crushing the loose cinders as he went. "'He knows the place by heart.' muttered Silas, and don't need to turn his lantern on, confound him. But he did turn it on, almost in that instant, and flashed its light upon the first of the bounds. "'Is that the spot?' asked Venus in a whisper. "'He's warm,' said Silas, in the same tone. "'He's precious warm. He's close. I think he must be going to look for it. What's that he's got in his hand?' "'A shuffle.' answered Venus, and he knows how to use it, remember, fifty times as well as either of us. If he looks for it and misses it, partner, suggested Wegg, what shall we do? First of all, wait till he does, said Venus. Discreet advice, too, for he darkened his lantern again, and the mound turned black. After a few seconds he turned the light on once more and was seen standing at the foot of the second mound, slowly raising the lantern, little by little, until he held it up at arm's length, as if he were examining the condition of the whole surface. "'That can't be the spot, too,' said Venus. "'No,' said Wegg. "'He's getting cold.' "'It strikes me,' whispered Venus, "'that he wants to find out whether any one has been groping about there.' "'Hush!' returned Wegg. He's getting colder and colder. Now he's freezing. This exclamation was elicited by his having turned the lantern off again and on again, and being visible at the foot of the third mound. Why, he's going up it, said Venus. Shovel and all, said Wegg. At a nimble trot, as if the shovel over his shoulder stimulated him by reviving old associations, Mr. Boffin ascended the serpentining walk up the mound, which he had described to Silas Wegg on the occasion of their beginning to decline and fall. On striking into it, he turned his lantern off. The two following him, stooping low, so that their figures might make no mark in relief against the sky when he should turn his lantern on again, Mr. Venus took the lead, towing Mr. Wegg, in order that his refractory leg might be promptly extricated from any pitfalls it should dig for itself. They could just make out that the golden dustman stopped to breathe. Of course they stopped too, instantly. "'This is his own mound,' whispered Wegg, as he recovered his wind. "'This one.' "'Why, all three are his own,' returned Venus. "'So he thinks.' But he's used to call this his own, because it's the one first left to him, the one that was his legacy when it was all he took under the will. "'When he shows his light,' said Venus, keeping watch upon his dusky figure all the time, "'drop lower, and keep closer.' He went on again, and they followed again, 
Gaining the top of the mound, he turned on his light, but only partially, and stood it on the ground. A bare lopsided weather-beaten pole was planted in the ashes there, and had been there many a year. Hard by this pole his lantern stood, lighting a few feet of the lower part of it, and a little of the ashy surface around, and then casting off a purposeless little clear trail of light into the air. "'He can never be going to dig up the pole,' whispered Venus, as they dropped low and kept close. "'Perhaps it's holler, and full of something,' whispered Wegg. He was going to dig, with whatsoever object, for he tucked up his cuffs and spat on his hands, and then went at it like an old digger as he was. He had no design upon the pole, except that he measured a shovel's length from it before beginning, nor was it his purpose to dig deep. Some dozen or so of expert strokes sufficed. Then he stopped, looked down into the cavity, bent over it, and took out what appeared to be an ordinary case-bottle, one of those squat, high-shouldered, short-necked glass-bottles which the Dutchman is said to keep his courage in. As soon as he had done this, he turned off his lantern, and they could hear that he was filling up the hole in the dark. The ashes being easily moved by a skilful hand, the spies took this as a hint to make off in good time. Accordingly, Mr. Venus slipped past Mr. Wegg, and towed him down. But Mr. Wegg's descent was not accomplished without some personal inconvenience, for his self-willed leg, sticking into the ashes about half-way down, and time pressing, Mr. Venus took the liberty of hauling him from his tether by the collar, which occasioned him to make the rest of the journey on his back, with his head enveloped in the skirts of his coat, and his wooden leg coming last like a drag. So flustered was Mr. Wegg by this mode of travelling, that only was set on the level ground with his intellectual developments uppermost, he was quite unconscious of his bearings, and had not the least idea where his place of residence was to be found, until Mr. Venus shoved him into it. Even then he staggered round and round, weakly staring about him, until Mr. Venus with a hard brush brushed his senses into him, and the dust out of him. Mr. Boffin came down leisurely, for this brushing process had been well accomplished, and Mr. Venus had had time to take his breath before he reappeared. That he had the bottle somewhere about him could not be doubted. Where was not so clear. He wore a large rough coat, buttoned over, and it might be in any one of half a dozen pockets. "'What's the matter, Wegg?' said Mr. Boffin. "'You are as pale as a candle.' Mr. Wegg replied with literal exactness that he felt as if he had had a turn. "'Bile,' said Mr. Boffin, blowing out the light in the lantern, shutting it up, and stowing it away in the breast of his coat as before. "'Are you subject to bile, Wegg?' Mr. Wegg again replied, with strict adherence to truth, that he didn't think he had ever had a similar sensation in his head to anything like the same extent. "'Physic yourself to-morrow, Wegg,' said Mr. Boffin, "'to be in order for next night. By the by, this neighbourhood is going to have a loss, Wegg.' "'A loss, sir?' going to lose the mounds.' The friendly movers made such an obvious effort not to look at one another, that they might as well have stared at one another with all their might. "'Have you parted with them, Mr. Boffin?' asked Silas. "'Yes, they're going. Mine's as good as gone already.' "'You mean the little one of the three with the pole atop, sir?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Boffin, rubbing his ear in his old way, with that new touch of craftiness added to it. "'It has fetched a penny.' It'll begin to be carted off to-morrow. "'Have you been out to take leave of your old friend, sir?' asked Silas, jocosely. "'No,' said Mr. Boffin. "'What the devil put that in your head?' He was so sudden and rough, 
at Wegg, who had been hovering closer and closer to his skirts, dispatching the back of his hand on exploring expeditions in search of the bottle's surface, retired two or three paces. "'No offence, sir,' said Wegg humbly. "'No offence.' Mr. Boffin eyed him as a dog might eye another dog who wanted his bone, and actually retorted with a low growl, as the dog might have retorted. "'Good night.' he said, after having sunk into a moody silence, with his hands clasped behind him, and his eyes suspiciously wandering about Wegg. "'No. Stop there. I know the way out, and I want no light.' Avarice, and the evening's legends of Avarice, and the inflammatory effect of what he had seen, and perhaps the rush of his ill-conditioned blood to his brain in his descent, wrought Silas Wegg to such a pitch of insatiable appetite, that when the door closed he made a swoop at it, and drew Venus along with him. "'He mustn't go!' he cried. "'We mustn't let him go! He's got that bottle about him! We must have that bottle!' "'Why, you wouldn't take it by force,' said Venus, restraining him. "'Wouldn't I? Yes, I would. I'd take it by any force. I'd have it at any price. Are you so afraid of one old man as to let him go, you coward?' "'I'm so afraid of you as not to let you go.' muttered Venus sturdily, clasping him in his arms. "'Did you hear him?' retorted Wegg. "'Did you hear him say that he was resolved to disappoint us? Did you hear him say, you cur, that he was going to have the mounds cleared off, when no doubt the whole place will be rummaged? If you haven't the spirit of a mouse to defend your rights, I have. Let me go after him.' As in his wildness he was making a strong struggle for it, Mr. Venus deemed it expedient to lift him, throw him, and fall with him. Well knowing that, once down, he would not be up again easily with his wooden leg. So they both rolled on the floor, and, as they did so, Mr. Boffin shut the gate. End of Book Three, Chapter Six Book Three, Chapter Seven of Our Mutual Friend this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Three, A Long Lane. Chapter Seven, The Friendly Move Takes Up a Strong Position. The friendly movers sat upright on the floor, panting and eyeing one another, after Mr. Boffin had slammed the gate and gone away. In the weak eyes of Venus, and in every reddish dust-coloured hair in his shock of hair, there was a marked distrust of Wegg, and an alertness to fly at him on perceiving the smallest occasion. In the hard-grained face of Wegg, and in his stiff, knotty figure, he looked like a German wooden toy, there was expressed a politic conciliation which had no spontaneity in it. Both were flushed, flustered, and rumpled by the late scuffle and Wegg, in coming to the ground, had received a humming knock on the back of his devoted head, which caused him still to rub it with an air of having been highly but disagreeably astonished. Each was silent for some time, leaving it to the other to begin. "'Brother,' said Wegg, at length, breaking the silence, "'you are right, and I was wrong. I forgot myself.' Mr. Venus knowingly cocked his shock of hair, as rather thinking Mr. Wegg had remembered himself, in respect of appearing without any disguise. "'But, comrade,' pursued Wegg, "'it was never your lot to know Miss Elizabeth, Master George, Aunt Jane, nor Uncle Parker.' 
Mr. Venus admitted that he had never known those distinguished persons, and added in effect that he had never so much desired the honour of their acquaintance. "'Don't say that, comrade,' retorted Wegg. "'No, don't say that, because without having known them, they never can fully know what it is to be stimulated to frenzy by the sight of the usurper.' Offering these excusatory words, as if they reflected great credit on himself, Mr. Wegg impelled himself with his hands towards a chair in a corner of the room, and there, after a variety of awkward gambols, attained a perpendicular position. Mr. Venus also rose. "'Comrade,' said Wegg, "'take a seat. Comrade, what a speaking countenance is yours!' Mr. Venus involuntarily smoothed his countenance, and looked at his hand as if to see whether any of its speaking properties came off. "'For clearly do I know, mark you,' pursued Wegg, pointing his words with his forefinger, "'clearly do I know what question your expressive feature puts to me.' "'What question?' said Venus. "'A question,' returned Wegg, with a sort of joyful affability. "'Why, I didn't mention sooner that I had found something.' "'Says your speaking countenance to me, "'why didn't you communicate that when I first come in this evening? "'Why did you keep it back till you thought Mr. Boffin had come to look for the article?' "'Your speaking countenance,' said Wegg, "'puts it plainer than language. "'Now, you can't read in my face what answer I give.' "'No, I can't,' said Venus. "'I knew it. And why not?' returned Wegg, with the same joyful candour, because I lay no claims to a speaking countenance, because I am well aware of my deficiencies. All men are not gifted alike, but I can answer in words. And in what words? These. I wanted to give you a delightful surprise. Having thus elongated and emphasised the word surprise, Mr. Wegg shook his friend and brother by both hands, and then clapped him on both knees like an affectionate patron who entreated him not to mention so small a service as that which it had been his happy privilege to render. "'Your speaking countenance,' said Wegg, "'being answered to its satisfaction, only ask, then, what have you found?' "'Why, I hear it say the words.' "'Well,' retorted Venus snappishly, after waiting in vain, if you hear it say the words, why don't you answer it? Hear me out, said Wegg. I'm a-going to. Hear me out. Man and brother, partner in feelings equally with undertakings and actions, I have found a cash-box. Where? Hear me out, said Wegg. He tried to reserve whatever he could, and— whenever disclosure was forced upon him, broke into a radiant gush of hear-me-out. "'On a certain day, sir.' "'When?' said Venus bluntly. "'No,' returned Wegg, shaking his head at once observantly, thoughtfully and playfully. "'No, sir, that's not your expressive countenance which asks that question. That's your voice, merely your voice, to proceed.' "'On a certain day, sir, I happened to be walking in the yard, taking my lonely round, for in the words of a friend of my own family, the author of All's Well, arranged as a duet, deserted, as you will remember, Mr. Weenus, 
by the waning moon, when stars it will occur to you before I mention it, proclaim night's cheerless noon, on tower, fort, or tented ground, the sentry walks his lonely round, the sentry walks. Under those circumstances, sir, I happen to be walking in the yard early one afternoon, and happen to have an iron rod in my hand, with which I have been sometimes accustomed to beguile the monotony of a literary life, when I struck it against an object not necessary to trouble you by naming. It is necessary. What object? demanded Venus in a wrathful tone. Hear me out, said Wegg. The pump. When I struck it against the pump, and found not only that the top was loose and opened with a lid, but that something in it rattled. That something, comrade, I discovered to be a small, flat, oblong cash-box. Shall I say it was disappointingly light? There were papers in it, said Venus. There your expressive countenance speaks indeed, cried Wegg. A paper. The box was locked, tied up, and sealed, and on the outside was a parchment label with the writing, My Will, John Harmon, temporarily deposited here. We must know its contents, said Venus. Hear me out, cried Wegg. I said so, and I broke the box open. Without coming to me, exclaimed Venus. Exactly so, sir returned Wegg, blandly and buoyantly. I see I take you with me. Hear, hear, hear. Resolved, as your discriminating good senses perceive, that if you was to have a surprise, it should be a complete one. Well, sir, and so, as you honoured me by anticipating, I examined the document. Regularly executed, regularly witnessed, very short inasmuch as he never made friends, and has ever had a rebellious family, he, John Harmon, gives to Nicodemus Boffin the little mound, which is quite enough for him, and gives the whole rest and residue of his property to the Crown. "'The date of the will that has been proved must be looked to,' remarked Venus. "'It may be later than this one.' "'Hear me out,' cried Wegg. "'I said so.' I paid a shilling, never mind your sixpence of it, to look up that will. Brother, that will is dated months before this will. And now, as a fellow man, and as a partner in a friendly move, added Wegg, benignantly taking him by both hands again, and clapping him on both knees again, say, have I completed my labour of love to your perfect satisfaction, and are you surprised? Mr. Venus contemplated his fellow-man and partner with doubting eyes, and then rejoined stiffly, This is great news indeed, Mr. Wegg, there's no denying it, but I could have wished you had told it me before you got your fright to-night, and I could have wished you had ever asked me as your partner what we were to do before you thought you were dividing a responsibility. Hear me out, cried Wegg. I knew you was a-going to say so, but alone I bore the anxiety, and alone I'll bear the blame. This with an air of great magnanimity. No, said Venus, let's see this will and this box. "'Do I understand, brother?' 
returned Wegg, with considerable reluctance, "'that it is your wish to see this will, and this—' Mr. Venus smote the table with his hand. "'Hear me out,' said Wegg. "'Hear me out. I'll go and fetch him. After being some time absent, as if in his covetousness he could hardly make up his mind to produce the treasure to his partner, he returned with an old leathern hat-box, into which he had put the other box, for the better preservation of commonplace appearance, and for the disarming of suspicion. "'But I don't half like opening it here,' said Silas, in a low voice, looking around. "'He might come back. He may not be gone. We don't know what he may be up to, after what we've seen.' "'There's something in that,' assented Venus. "'Come to my place.' Jealous of the custody of the box, and yet fearful of opening it under the existing circumstances, Wegg hesitated. "'Come, I tell you,' repeated Venus, chafing, "'to my place.' Not very well seeing his way to a refusal, Mr. Wegg then rejoined in a gush, "'Hear me out, certainly.' So he locked up the bower, and they set forth. Mr. Venus taking his arm, and keeping it with remarkable tenacity. They found the usual dim light burning in the window of Mr. Venus's establishment, imperfectly disclosing to the public the usual pair of preserved frogs, sword in hand, with their point of honour still unsettled. Mr. Venus had closed his shop-door on coming out, and now opened it with the key, and shut it again, as soon as they were within, but not before he had put up and barred the shutters of the shop-window. "'No one can get in without being let in,' said he then, "'and we couldn't be more snug than here.' So he raked together the yet warm cinders in the rusty grate, and made a fire, and trimmed the candle on the little counter. As the fire cast its flickering gleams here and there upon the dark, greasy walls—the Hindu baby, the African baby, the articulated English baby, the assortment of skulls, and the rest of the collection, came starting to their various stations, as if they had all been out, like their master, and were punctual in a general rendezvous to assist at the secret. The French gentleman had grown considerably since Mr. Wegg last saw him, being now accommodated with a pair of legs and a head, though his arms were yet in abeyance. To whomsoever the head had originally belonged, Silas Wegg would have regarded it as a personal favour if he had not cut quite so many teeth. Silas took his seat in silence on the wooden box before the fire, and Venus, dropping into his low chair, produced from among his skeleton hands his tea-tray and teacups, and put the kettle on. Silas inwardly approved of these preparations, trusting they might end in Mr. Venus's diluting his intellect. "'Now, sir,' said Venus. All is safe and quiet. Let us see this discovery. With still reluctant hands, and not without several glances towards the skeleton hands, as if he mistrusted that a couple of them might spring forth and clutch the document, Wegg opened the hat-box, and revealed the cash-box, opened the cash-box, and revealed the will. He held a corner of it tight, while Venus, taking hold of another corner, searchingly and attentively read it. "'Was I correct in my account of it, partner?' said Mr. Wegg at length. "'Partner, you were,' said Mr. Venus. Mr. Wegg thereupon made an easy, graceful movement, as though he would fold it up, but Mr. Venus held on by his corner. "'No, sir,' said Mr. Venus, winking his weak eyes and shaking his head. "'No, partner. The question is now brought up. Who is going to take care of this?' "'Do you know who is going to take care of this partner?' "'I am,' said Wegg. "'Oh, dear no, partner,' 
retorted Venus. "'That's a mistake. I am. Now look here, Mr. Wegg. I don't want to have any words with you, and still less do I want to have any anatomical pursuits with you.' "'What do you mean?' said Wegg, quickly. "'I mean, partner,' replied Venus slowly, "'that it's hardly possible for a man to feel in a more amiable state towards another man than I do towards you at this present moment.' But I am on my own ground. I am surrounded by the trophies of my art, and my tools is very handy. "'What do you mean, Mr. Venus?' asked Wegg again. "'I am surrounded, as I have observed,' said Mr. Venus placidly, "'by the trophies of my art. They are numerous. My stock of human warriors is large.' The shop is pretty well crammed, and I don't just now want any more trophies of my art. But I like my art, and I know how to exercise my art. "'No man better,' assented Mr. Wegg, with a somewhat staggered air. "'There's the miscellanies of several human specimens,' said Venus, "'though you mightn't think it, in the box on which you're sitting.' "'There's the miscellanies of several human specimens in the lovely compo one behind the door,' with a nod towards the French gentleman. "'It still wants a pair of arms. I don't say that I'm in any hurry for them.' "'You must be wandering in your mind, partner,' Silas remonstrated. "'You'll excuse me if I wonder,' returned Venus. "'I am sometimes rather subject to it.' I like my art, and I know how to exercise my art, and I mean to have the keeping of this document. "'But what has that got to do with your art, partner?' asked Wegg in an insinuating tone. Mr. Venus winked his chronically fatigued eyes both at once, and adjusting the kettle on the fire, remarked to himself in a hollow voice, "'She'll bile in a couple of minutes.' Silas Wegg glanced at the kettle, glanced at the shelves, glanced at the French gentleman behind the door, and shrank a little as he glanced at Mr. Venus, winking his red eyes, and feeling in his waistcoat pocket, as for a lancet, say, with his unoccupied hand. He and Venus were necessarily seated close together, as each held a corner of the document, which was but a common sheet of paper. "'Partner,' said Wegg, even more insinuatingly than before, "'I propose that we cut it in half, and each keep a half.' Venus shook his shock of hair, as he replied, "'It wouldn't do to mutilate it, partner. It might seem to be cancelled.' "'Partner,' said Wegg, after silence during which they had contemplated one another, "'don't your speaking countenance say that you're a-going to suggest a middle course?' Venus shook his shock of hair, as he replied, "'Partner, you have kept this paper from me once. You shall never keep it from me again.' I offer you the box and the label to take care of, but I'll take care of the paper." Silas hesitated a little longer, and then suddenly releasing his corner, and resuming his buoyant and benignant tone, exclaimed, "'What's life without trustfulness? What's a fellow man without honour? You're welcome to it, partner, in a spirit of trust and confidence.' Continuing to wink his red eyes both together, but in a self-communing way, and without any show of triumph, Mr. Venus folded the paper, now left, in his hand, and locked it in a drawer behind him, and pocketed the key. 
he then proposed, "'A cup of tea, partner?' To which Mr. Wegg returned, "'Thank'ee, partner,' and the tea was made, and poured out. "'Next,' said Venus, blowing at his tea in his saucer, and looking over it at his confidential friend, "'comes the question, what's the course to be pursued?' On this head Silas Wegg had much to say. Silas had to say that he would beg to remind his comrade, brother, and partner of the impressive passages they had read that evening, of the evident parallel in Mr. Boffin's mind between them and the late owner of the bower, and the present circumstances of the bower, of the bottle, and of the box, that the fortunes of his brother and comrade and of himself were evidently made, inasmuch as they had but to put their price upon this document, and get that price from the minion of fortune and the worm of the hour who now appeared to be less of a minion and more of a worm than had been previously supposed that he considered it plain that such price was statable in a single expressive word and that the word was halves that the question then arose when halves should be called that here he had a plan of action to recommend with a conditional clause that the plan of action was that they should lie by with patience that they should allow the mounds to be gradually levelled and cleared away, while retaining to themselves their present opportunity of watching the process, which would be, he conceived, to put the trouble and cost of daily digging and delving upon somebody else, while they might nightly turn such complete disturbance of the dust to the account of their own private investigations, and that, when the mounds were gone, and they had worked those chances for their own joint benefit solely, they should then, and not before, explode on the and worm. But here came the conditional clause, and to this he entreated the special attention of his comrade, brother, and partner. It was not to be borne that the minion and worm should carry off any of that property which was now to be regarded as their own property. When he, Mr. Wegg, had seen the minion surreptitiously making off with that bottle, and its precious contents unknown, he had looked upon him in the light of a mere robber and, as such, would have despoiled him of his ill-gotten gain, but for the judicious interference of his comrade, brother, and partner. Therefore the conditional clause he proposed was that, if the minion should return in his late sneaking manner, and if, being closely watched, he should be found to possess himself of anything, no matter what, the sharp sword impending over his head should be instantly shown him he should be strictly examined as to what he knew or suspected should be severely handled by them his masters and should be kept in a state of abject moral bondage and slavery until the time when they should see fit to permit him to purchase his freedom at the price of half his possessions if said mr wegg by way of peroration he had erred in saying only halves he trusted to his comrade brother and partner not to hesitate to set him right and to reprove his weakness it might be more according to the rights of things to say two-thirds. It might be more according to the rights of things to say three-fourths. On those points he was ever open to correction. Mr. Venus, having wafted his attention to this discourse over three successive sources of tea, signified his concurrence in the views advanced. Inspirited hereby, Mr. Wegg extended his right hand, and declared it to be a hand which never yet, without entering into more minute particulars, Mr. Venus, sticking to his tea, briefly professed his belief, as polite forms required of him, that it was a hand which never yet, but contented himself with looking at it, and did not take it to his bosom. "'Brother,' 
said Wegg, when this happy understanding was established, I should like to ask you something. You remember the night when I first looked in here, and found you floating your powerful mind in tea? Still swilling tea, Mr. Venus nodded assent. And there you sit, sir, pursued Wegg, with an air of thoughtful admiration, as if you had never left off. There you sit, sir, as if you had an unlimited capacity of assimilating the flagrant article. There you sit, sir, in the midst of your works, looking as if you'd been called upon for home, sweet home, and was obliging the company. I exile from home, splendour dazzles in vain. Oh, give you your lonely preparations again. The birds stuffed so sweetly, I can't be expected to come at your call. Give you these with a peace of mind dearer than all. Home, 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 sweet home. Be it ever, added Mr. Wegg in prose, as he glanced about the shop, ever so ghastly, all things considered, there's no place like it. "'You said you'd like to ask something, but you haven't asked it,' remarked Venus, very unsympathetic in manner. "'Your peace of mind,' said Wegg, offering condolence, "'your peace of mind was in a poor way that night. How's it going on? Is it looking up at all?' "'She does not wish,' replied Mr. Venus, with a comical mixture of indignant obstinacy and tender melancholy, "'to regard herself, nor yet to be regarded in that particular light.' There's no more to be said. Ah, oh, dear me, dear me, exclaimed Wegg with a sigh, but eyeing him while pretending to keep him company and eyeing the fire. Such is woman. And I remember you said that night, sitting there as I sat here, said that night when your peace of mind was first laid low, that you had taken an interest in these very affairs. Such is coincidence. "'Her father,' rejoined Venus, and then stopped to swallow more tea, "'her father was mixed up in them.' "'You didn't mention her name, sir, I think,' observed Wegg pensively. "'No, you didn't mention her name that night.' "'Pleasant Ridehood.' "'Indeed,' cried Wegg. "'Pleasant Ridehood. "'There's something moving in the name, Pleasant. "'Dear me!' seems to express what she might have been, if she hadn't made that unpleasant remark, and what she ain't, in consequence of having made it. Would it at all pour balm into your wounds, Mr. Venus, to inquire how you came acquainted with her?' "'I was down at the waterside,' said Venus, taking another gulp of tea, and mournfully winking at the fire, "'looking for parrots,' taking another gulp, and stopping. Mr. Wegg hinted, to jog his attention, "'You could hardly have been out parrot-shooting in the British climate, sir.' "'No, no, no,' said Venus fretfully. "'I was down at the waterside, looking for parrots, brought home by sailors, to buy for stuffing.' "'Aye, aye, aye, sir.' "'And looking for a nice pair of rattlesnakes to articulate for a museum. When I was doomed to fall in with her and deal with her, it was just at the time of that discovery in the river. Her father had seen the discovery being towed in the river. I made the popularity of the subject a reason for going back to improve the acquaintance, and I've never since been the man I was. My very bones is rendered flabby by brooding over it. 
If they could be brought to me loose, to sort, I should hardly have the face to claim them as mine. To such an extent have I fallen off under it. Mr. Wegg, less interested than he had been, glanced at one particular shelf in the dark. "'Why, I remember Mr. Venus,' he said in a tone of friendly commiseration, "'for I remember every word that falls from you, sir. I remember that you said that night you had got up there, and then your words was, never mind.' "'The parrot that I bought of her,' said Venus, with a despondent rise and fall of his eyes, "'yes, there it lies on its side, dried up, except for its plumage.' very like myself. I've never had the art to prepare it, and I never shall have now." With a disappointed face, Silas mentally consigned this parrot to regions more than tropical, and, seeming for the time to have lost his power of assuming an interest in the woes of Mr. Venus, fell to tightening his wooden leg as a preparation for departure, its gymnastic performances of that evening having severely tried its constitution. After Silas had left the shop, hat-box in hand, and had left Mr. Venus to lower himself to oblivion point, with the requisite weight of tea, it greatly preyed on his ingenuous mind that he had taken this artist into partnership at all. He bitterly felt that he had overreached himself, in the beginning, by grasping at Mr. Venus's mere straws of hints, now shown to be worthless for his purpose, casting about for ways and means of dissolving the connection without loss of money reproaching himself for having been betrayed into an avowal of his secret, and complimenting himself beyond measure on his purely accidental good luck, he beguiled the distance between Clerkenwell and the mansion of the Golden Dustman. For Silas Wegg felt it to be quite out of the question that he could lay his head upon his pillow in peace, without first hovering over Mr. Boffin's house in the superior character of its evil genius. Power, unless it be the power of intellect or virtue, has ever the greatest attraction for the lowest natures, and the mere defiance of the unconscious house-front, with his power to strip the roof off the inhabiting family like the roof of a house of cards, was a treat which had a charm for Silas Wegg. As he hovered on the opposite side of the street, exulting, the carriage drove up. "'There'll shortly be an end of you,' said Wegg threatening it with the hat-box, "'Your varnish is fading!' Mrs. Boffin descended, and went in. "'Look out for a fall, my lady dust-woman,' said Wegg. Bella lightly descended, and ran in after her. "'How brisk we are!' said Wegg. "'You won't run so gaily to your old shabby home, my girl. You'll have to go there, though.' A little while, and the secretary came out. "'I was passed over for you,' said Wegg. "'But you had better provide yourself with another situation, young man.' Mr. Boffin's shadow passed upon the blinds of three large windows, as he trotted down the room, and passed again as he went back. "'Yep!' cried Wegg. "'You're there, are you? Where's the bottle?' You would give your bottle for my box, Dasman. Having now composed his mind for slumber, he turned homeward. Such was the greed of the fellow, that his mind had shot beyond halves, two-thirds, three-fourths, and gone straight to spoliation of the whole. Though that wouldn't quite do, he considered, growing cooler as he got away, that's what would happen to him if he didn't buy us up. We should get nothing by that. 
we so judge others by ourselves, that it had never come into his head before, that he might not buy us up, and might prove honest, and prefer to be poor. It caused him a slight tremor as it passed, but a very slight one, for the idle thought was gone directly. "'He's grown too fond of money for that,' said Wegg. "'He's grown too fond of money.' The burden fell into a strain or tune, as he stumped along the pavements. All the way home he stumped it out of the rattling streets. Piano, with his own foot, and forte, with his wooden leg. "'He's grown too fond of money for that. He's grown too fond of money.' Even next day Silas soothed himself with this melodious strain, when he was called out of bed at daybreak to set open the yard-gate, and admit the train of carts and horses that came to carry off the little mound. And all day long, as he kept unwinking watch on the slow process, which promised to protract itself through many days and weeks, whenever, to save himself from being choked with dust, he patrolled a little cinderous beat he established for the purpose, without taking his eyes from the diggers, he still stumped to the tune, "'He's grown too fond of money for that. He's grown too fond of money.'" End of Book Three, Chapter Seven Book Three, Chapter Eight of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Three. A Long Lane. Chapter 8. The End of a Long Journey. The train of carts and horses came and went all day from dawn to nightfall, making little or no daily impression on the heap of ashes, though, as the days passed on, the heap was seen to be slowly melting. My lords and gentlemen and honourable boards, when you in the course of your dust-shovelling and cinder-raking have piled up a mountain of pretentious failure, you must off with your honourable coats for the removal of it, and fall to the work with the power of all the Queen's horses and all the Queen's men, or it will come rushing down and bury us alive. Yes, verily, my lords and gentlemen and honourable boards, adapting your catechism to the occasion, and by God's help, so you must. For when we have got things to the pass, that with an enormous treasure at disposal to relieve the poor, the best of the poor detest our mercies, hide their heads from us, and shame us, by starving to death in the midst of us, it is a pass impossible of prosperity, impossible of continuance. It may not so be written in the gospel according to Podsnappery. You may not find these words for the text of a sermon in the returns of the Board of Trade, but they have been the truth since the foundations of the universe were laid and they will be the truth until the foundations of the universe are shaken by the builder. This boastful handiwork of ours, which fails in its terrors for the professional pauper, the sturdy breaker of windows, and the rampant terror of clothes, strikes with a cruel and a wicked stab at the stricken sufferer, and is a horror to the deserving and unfortunate. We must mend it, lords and gentlemen and honourable boards, or in its own evil hour it will mar every one of us. Old Betty Higdon fared upon her pilgrimage, as many ruggedly honest creatures, women and men, fare on their toiling way along the roads of life, patiently to earn a spare, bare living, and quietly to die, 
untouched by workhouse hands, this was her highest sublunary hope. Nothing had been heard of her at Mr. Boffin's house, since she trudged off. The weather had been hard, and the roads had been bad, and her spirit was up. A less staunch spirit might have been subdued by such adverse influences. But the loan for her little outfit was in no part repaid, and it had gone worse with her than she had foreseen, and she was put upon proving her case and maintaining her independence. Faithful soul! When she had spoken to the secretary of that deadness that steals over me at times, her fortitude had made too little of it. Oftener and ever oftener it came stealing over her, darker and ever darker, like the shadow of advancing death. That the shadow should be deep as it came on, like the shadow of an actual presence, was in accordance with the laws of the physical world, for all the light that shone on Betty Higdon lay beyond death. The poor old creature had taken the upward course of the River Thames as her general track. It was the track in which her last home lay, and of which she had last had local love and knowledge. She had hovered for a little while in the near neighbourhood of her abandoned dwelling, and had sold, and knitted and sold, and gone on. In the pleasant towns of Chertsey, Walton, Kingston, and Staines, her figure came to be quite well known for some short weeks, and then again passed on. She would take her stand in market-places, where there were such things, on market-days, at other times in the busiest, that was seldom very busy, portion of the little quiet high street. At still other times she would explore the outlying roads for great houses, and would ask leave at the lodge to pass in with her basket, and would not often get it. But ladies in carriages would frequently make purchases from her trifling stock, and were usually pleased with her bright eyes and her hopeful speech. In these and her clean dress originated a fable that she was well-to-do in the world, one might say, for her station, rich, as making a comfortable provision for its subject which costs nobody anything. This class of fable has long been popular. In those pleasant little towns on Thames you may hear the fall of the water over their weirs, or even, in still weather, the rustle of the rushes, and from the bridge you may see the young river dimpled like a young child, playfully gliding away among the trees, unpolluted by the defilements that lie in wait for it on its course, and as yet out of hearing of the deep summons of the sea. It were too much to pretend that Betty Higdon made out such thoughts. No. But she heard the tender river whispering to many like herself. Come to me, come to me, when the cruel shame and terror you have so long fled from most beset you come to me. I am the relieving officer appointed by eternal ordinance to do my work. I am not held in estimation according as I shirk it. My breast is softer than the pauper nurses. Death in my arms is peacefuller than among the pauper wards. Come to me. There was abundant place for gentler fancies, too, in her untutored mind. Those gentlefolks and their children inside those fine houses, could they think, as they looked out at her, what it was to be really hungry, really cold? Did they feel any of the wonder about her that she felt about them? Bless the dear laughing children! If they could have seen sick Johnny in her arms, would they have cried for pity? If they could have seen dead Johnny on that little bed, would they have understood it? Bless the dear children for his sake, anyhow! So with the humbler houses in the little street— 
the inner firelight shining on the panes as the outer twilight darkened. When the families gathered indoors there for the night, it was only a foolish fancy to feel as if it were a little hard in them to close the shutter and blacken the flame. So with the lighted shops, and speculations whether their masters and mistresses taking tea in a perspective of back parlour, not so far within, but that the flavour of tea and toast came out, mingled with the glow of light, into the street, ate or drank or wore what they sold, with the greater relish, because they dealt in it. So with the churchyard, on a branch of the solitary way, to the night's sleeping-place. Ah, oh, me! The dead and I seem to have it pretty much to ourselves in the dark and in this weather, but so much the better for all who are warmly housed at home. The poor soul envied no one in bitterness, and grudged no one anything. But the old abhorrence grew stronger on her as she grew weaker, and it found more sustaining food than she did in her wanderings. Now she would light upon the shameful spectacle of some desolate creature, or some wretched ragged groups of either sex, or of both sexes, with children among them, huddled together like the smaller vermin for a little warmth, lingering and lingering on a doorstep, while the appointed evader of the public trust did his dirty office of trying to weary them out, and so get rid of them. Now she would light upon some poor decent person like herself, going afoot on a pilgrimage of many weary miles, to see some worn-out relative or friend who had been charitably clutched off to a great blank barren union-house, as far from old home as the county jail, the remoteness of which is always its worst punishment for small rural offenders, and in its dietary, and in its lodging, and in its tending of the sick, a much more penal establishment. Sometimes she would hear a newspaper read out, and would learn how the Registrar-General cast up the units that had, within the last week, died of want and of exposure to the weather, for which that recording angel seemed to have a regular fixed place in his sum, as if they were its halfpence. All such things she would hear discussed, as we, my lords and gentlemen and honourable boards, in our unapproachable magnificence, never hear them and from all such things she would fly, with the wings of raging despair. This is not to be received as a figure of speech. Old Betty Higdon, however tired, however footsore, would start up and be driven away by her awakened horror of falling into the hands of charity. It is a remarkable Christian improvement to have made a pursuing fury of the Good Samaritan, but it was so in this case, and it is a type of many, many, many. Two incidents united to intensify the old unreasoning abhorrence, granted in a previous place to be unreasoning, because the people always are unreasoning, and invariably make a point of producing all their smoke without fire. One day she was sitting in a market-place on a bench outside an inn, with her little wares for sale, when the deadness that she strove against came over her so heavily that the scene departed from before her eyes. When it returned, she found herself on the ground, her head supported by some good-natured market-women, and a little crowd about her. "'Are you better now, mother?' asked one of the women. "'Do you think you can do nicely now?' "'Have I been ill, then?' asked old Betty. "'You have had a faint-like,' was the answer, "'or a fit. It ain't that you've been a struggling, mother, but you've been stiff and numbed.' "'Ah!' 
said Betty, recovering her memory. "'It's the numbness. Yes, it, it, it comes over me at times.' "'Was it gone?' the woman asked her. "'It's gone now,' said Betty. "'I shall be stronger than I was afore. Many thanks to ye, my dears, and when you come to be as old as I am, may others do as much for you.' They assisted her to rise, but she could not stand yet and they supported her when she sat down again upon the bench. "'My head's a bit light, and my feet are a bit heavy,' said old Betty, leaning her face drowsily on the breast of the woman who had spoken before. "'They'll both come natural in a minute. There's nothing more the matter.' "'Ask her,' said some farmer standing by, who had come out from their market dinner, who belongs to her? Are there any folks belonging to you, mother? said the woman. Yes, sure, answered Betty. I heard the gentleman say it, but I couldn't answer quick enough. There's plenty belonging to me. Don't ye fear for me, my dear. But are any of them near here? said the men's voices, the women's voices chiming in when it was said, and prolonging the strain. "'Quite near enough,' said Betty, rousing herself. "'Don't ye be afeard for me, neighbours. "'But you are not fit to travel. "'Where are you going?' was the next compassionate chorus she heard. "'I'm a-going to London when I've sold out all,' said Betty, rising with difficulty. "'I've right good friends in London. "'I want for nothing. "'I shall come to no harm. "'Thank ye. "'Don't ye be afeard for me.' A well-meaning bystander, yellow-legginged and purple-faced, said hoarsely over his red comforter, as she rose to her feet, that she oughtn't to be let to go. "'For the Lord's love, don't meddle with me.' cried old Betty, all her fears crowding on her. "'I am quite well now. I must go this minute.' She caught up her basket as she spoke, and was making an unsteady rush away from them, when the same bystander checked her with his hand on her sleeve, and urged her to come with him and see the parish doctor. Strengthening herself by the utmost exercise of her resolution, the poor trembling creature shook him off, almost fiercely, and took to flight nor did she feel safe until she had set a mile or two of by-road between herself and the market-place, and had crept into a copse like a hunted animal, to hide and recover breath. Not until then, for the first time, did she venture to recall how she had looked over her shoulder before turning out of the town, and had seen the sign of the white lion hanging across the road, and the fluttering market-booths, and the old grey church, and the little crowd gazing after her, but not attempting to follow her. The second frightening incident was this. She had been again as bad, and had been for some days better, and was travelling along by a part of the road where it touched the river, and in wet seasons was so often overflowed by it that there were tall white posts set up to mark the way. A barge was being towed towards her, and she sat down on the bank to rest and watch it. As the tow-rope was slackened by a turn of the stream, and dipped into the water, such a confusion stole into her mind that she thought she saw the forms of her dead children and dead grandchildren peopling the barge and waving their hands to her in solemn measure, 
Then, as the rope tightened and came up dropping diamonds, it seemed to vibrate into two parallel ropes and strike her with a twang, though it was far off. When she looked again, there was no barge, no river, no daylight, and a man whom she had never before seen held a candle close to her face. "'Now, missus,' said he, "'where did you come from, and where are you going to?' The poor soul confusedly asked the counter-question where she was. "'I am the Lock,' said the man. "'The Lock?' "'I am the Deputy Lock on job, and this is the Lock-house. Lock or Deputy Lock, it's all one, while the t'other man's in the hospital. What's your parish?' "'Parish?' She was up from the truckle-bed directly, wildly feeling about for her basket, and gazing at him in a fright. "'You'll be asked the question downtown.' said the man. They won't let you be more than a casual there. They pass you want your settlement, missus, with all speed. You're not in a state to be let come upon strange parishes, settin' as a casual. "'Twas the deadness again,' murmured Betty Higdon, with her hand to her head. "'It was the deadness. There's not a doubt about it,' returned the man. "'I should have thought the deadness was a mild word for it, if it had been named to me when we brought you in. Have you got any friends, missus?' "'The best of friends, master.' "'I should recommend you looking them up, if you consider them game to do anything for you,' said the deputy lock. "'Have you got any money?' "'Just a morsel of money, sir.' "'Do you want to keep it?' "'Sure I do.' "'Well, you know,' said the deputy lock, shrugging his shoulders with his hands in his pockets, and shaking his head in a sulkily ominous manner, the parish authorities downtown will have it out of you if you go on. You may take your Alfred David. Then I'll not go on. They'll make you pay, as fur as your money will go, pursued the deputy, for your relief as a casual in for being past your parish. Thank ye kindly, master, for your warning. Thank you for your shelter, and good night. Stop a bit said the deputy, striking in between her and the door. "'Why, are you all of a shake? And what's your hurry, missus?' "'Oh, master, master,' returned Betty Higton, "'I've fought against the parish, and fed from it all my life, and I want to die free of it.' "'I don't know,' said the deputy, with deliberation, "'as I ought to let you go.' I'm a honest man, as gets my living by the sweat of me brow, and I may fall into trouble by letting you go. I've fell into trouble afore now, by George, and I know what it is, and it's made me careful. You might be took with your deadness again half a mile off, or half of half a quarter, for the matter of that, and then it would be asked, why did that there honest deputy lock let her go, instead of putting her safe with the parish?' "'That's what a man of his character ought to have done, and it would be argified,' said the deputy lock, cunningly harping on the strong string of her terror. "'He ought to have handed her over safe to the parish. That was to be expected of a man of his merits.' As he stood in the doorway, the poor old careworn, wayworn woman burst into tears, and clasped her hands, as if in a very agony she prayed to him— as i've told you master i've the best of friends this letter will show how true i spoke and they will be thankful for me 
The deputy lock opened the letter with a grave face, which underwent no change as he eyed its contents, but it might have done if he could have read them. "'What amount of small change, missus?' he said with an abstracted air, after a little meditation. "'Might you call a morsel of money?' Hurriedly emptying her pocket, old Betty laid down on the table a shilling and two sixpenny pieces and a few pence. "'If I was to let you go, instead of handing you over safe to the parish,' said the deputy, counting the money with his eyes, "'might it be your own free wish to leave that there behind you?' "'Take it, master, take it, and welcome, and thankful.' "'I'm a man,' said the deputy, giving her back the letter, and pocketing the coins one by one, "'as earns his living by the sweat of his brow.' Here he drew his sleeve across his forehead, as if this particular portion of his humble gains were the result of sheer hard labour and virtuous industry. "'And I won't stand in your way. Go where you like.' She was gone out of the lock-house as soon as he gave her this permission, and her tottering steps were on the road again. But, afraid to go back, and afraid to go forward, seeing what she fled from in the sky-glare of the lights of the little town before her, and leaving a confused horror of it everywhere behind her, as if she had escaped it in every stone of every market-place, she struck off by sideways, among which she got bewildered and lost. That night she took refuge from the Samaritan in his latest accredited form, under a farmer's rick, and if, worth thinking of, perhaps my fellow Christians, the Samaritan had in the lonely night passed by on the other side, she would have most devoutly thanked high heaven for her escape from him. The morning found her afoot again, but fast declining as to the clearness of her thoughts, though not as to the steadiness of her purpose. Comprehending that her strength was quitting her, and that the struggle of her life was almost ended, she could neither reason out the means of getting back to her protectors, nor even form the idea. The overmastering dread, and the proud, stubborn resolution it engendered in her to die undegraded, were the two distinct impressions left in her failing mind, supported only by a sense that she was bent on conquering in her lifelong fight. She went on. The time was come, now, when the wants of this little life were passing away from her. She could not have swallowed food, though a table had been spread for her in the next field. The day was cold and wet, but she scarcely knew it. She crept on, poor soul, like a criminal afraid of being taken, and felt little beyond the terror of falling down while it was yet daylight, and being found alive. She had no fear that she would live through another night. Sewn in the breast of her gown, the money to pay for her burial was still intact. If she could wear through the day, and then lie down to die under cover of the darkness, she would die independent. If she were captured previously, the money would be taken from her as a pauper who had no right to it, and she would be carried to the accursed workhouse. Gaining her end, the letter would be found in her breast along with the money, and the gentlefolk would say, when it was given back to them, she prized it, did old Betty Higdon. She was true to it, and while she lived she would never let it be disgraced, by falling into the hands of those that she held in horror. Most illogical, inconsequential, and light-headed this, but travellers in the valley of the shadow of death are apt to be light-headed, and worn-out old people of low estate have a trick of reasoning as indifferently as they live, and doubtless would appreciate our poor law more philosophically on an income of ten thousand a year. 
So, keeping to byways, and shunning human approach, this troublesome old woman hid herself, and fared on all through the dreary day. Yet so unlike was she to vagrant hiders in general, that sometimes, as the day advanced, there was a bright fire in her eyes, and a quicker beating at her feeble heart, as though she said exultingly, The Lord will see me through it. By what visionary hands she was led along upon that journey of escape from the Samaritan, by what voices, hushed in the grave, she seemed to be addressed, how she fancied the dead child in her arms again, and times innumerable adjusted her shawl to keep it warm, what infinite variety of forms of tower and roof and steeple the trees took, how many furious horsemen rode at her crying, There she goes, stop, stop, Betty Higdon, and melted away as they came close, be these things left untold. Faring on and hiding, hiding and faring on, the poor harmless creature, as though she were a murderess and the whole country were up after her, wore out the day and gained the night. Water meadows, or such like, she had sometimes murmured, on the day's pilgrimage, when she had raised her head and taken any note of the real objects about her. There now arose in the darkness a great building, full of lighted windows. Smoke was issuing from a high chimney in the rear of it, and there was the sound of a water-wheel at the side. Between her and the building lay a piece of water in which the lighted windows were reflected, and on its nearest margin was a plantation of trees. "'I humbly thank the power and the glory,' said Betty Higdon, holding up her withered hands, "'that I have come to my journey's end.' She crept among the trees, to the trunk of a tree, whence she could see, beyond some intervening trees and branches, the lighted windows, both in their reality and their reflection in the water. She placed her orderly little basket at her side, and sank upon the ground, supporting herself against the tree. It brought to her mind the foot of the cross, and she committed herself to him who died upon it. Her strength held out to enable her to arrange the letter in her breast, so as that it could be seen that she had a paper there. It had held out for this, and it departed when this was done. "'I am safe here,' was her last benumbed thought. "'When I am found dead at the foot of the cross,' It will be by some of my own sort, some of the working people who work among the lights yonder. I cannot see the lighted windows now, but they are there. I am thankful for all. The darkness gone, and a face bending down. It cannot be the boofer lady. I don't understand what you say. Let me wet your lips again with this brandy. I've been away to fetch it. Did you think I was long gone? It is as the face of a woman, shaded by a quantity of rich dark hair. It is the earnest face of a woman who is young and handsome. But all is over with me on earth, and this must be an angel. Have I been long dead? I don't understand what you say. Let me wet your lips again. I hurried all I could, and brought no one back with me, lest you should die of the shock of strangers. 
am i not dead i cannot understand what you say your voice is so low and broken that i cannot hear you do you hear me yes do you mean yes yes i was coming from my work just now along the path outside i was up with the night hands last night and i heard a groan and found you lying there what work dearie did you ask what work at the paper mill where is it your face is turned up to the sky and you can't see it it is close by you can see my face here between you and the sky yes dare i lift you not yet not even lift your head to get on my arm i would do it by very gentle degrees you shall hardly feel it not yet paper letter this paper in your breast bless ye let me wet your lips again am i to open it to read it bless ye she reads it with surprise and looks down with a new expression and an added interest on the motionless face she kneels beside i know these names i have heard them often will you send it my dear i cannot understand you let me wet your lips again and your forehead there oh poor thing poor thing these words through her fast dropping tears what was it that you asked me wait till i bring my ear quite close will you send it my dear will i send it to the writers is that your wish yes certainly you'll not give it up to any one but them no as you must grow old in time and come to your dying hour my dear you not give it up to any one but them no most solemnly never to the parish with a convulsed struggle no most solemnly nor let the parish touch me not yet so much as look at me with another struggle no faithfully a look of thankfulness and triumph lights the worn old face the eyes which have been darkly fixed upon the sky turn with meaning in them towards the compassionate face from which the tears are dropping and a smile is on the aged lips as they ask what is your name my dear my name is lizzie hexam i must be sore disfigured are you afraid to kiss me the answer is the ready pressure of her lips upon the cold but smiling mouth bless ye now lift me my love lizzie hexam 
very softly raised the weather-stained grey head, and lifted her as high as heaven. End of Book Three Chapter Eight <laughs>